Bibles to 2 Kings chapter 6, I would like to begin reading with verse number 25, the title, as we work our way through these passages, we're simply calling this, we're saying you cannot be silent, you cannot be silent. 2 Kings 6 verse 25, and there was a great famine in Samaria, and behold, they besieged it until an ass's head was sold for fourscore pieces of silver, and the fourth part of a cab of dove's dung for five pieces of silver. And as the king of Israel was passing by upon the wall, there cried a woman unto him, saying, Help, my lord, O king. He said, If the Lord doesn't help you, whence shall I help you? Out of the barn floor, out of the wine press? The king said to her, What ails you? She answered, This woman said to me, Give your son that we may eat him today, and we will eat my son tomorrow. So we boiled my son and did eat him, and I said unto her, On the next day give thy son that we may eat him, and she hath hid her son. And it came to pass when the king heard the words of the woman that he rent his clothes, and he passed by upon the wall. The people looked, and behold, he had sackcloth upon his flesh. And he said, God do so and more also to me, if the head of Elisha, the son of Shaphat, shall stand on him this day. Let's have a word of prayer. Uh, Father, this is a wonderful opportunity to look into the scriptures tonight and speak to us in ways that maybe we have not been spoken to before. But God, we do want to know the truth of your word and the truth of scripture. Open our eyes and our ears. Help us to understand your great grace and your mercy Give us a deeper appreciation for the cross upon which Jesus died, the blood that was shed for each one of us, all of our sins that were eradicated. And when we walk away from here this evening, help us to be the kind of people that have to tell somebody about how good and how wonderful you've been to us. In Jesus' name, amen, amen, amen. This is a story about a famine Bible is filled with such stories, although the events that occur in famines differ. Abraham dealt with the famine. Isaac had to deal with the famine. Jacob had to deal with the famine. Joseph had to deal with the famine. It's a recurring situation with the children of Israel. Now, God made it very plain that in Deuteronomy 28, if they did what they were supposed to do, that they would be blessed. However, they did not do what they needed to do, then difficulties would, would come to them. But in a famine, oftentimes, if it's a long-lasting famine, you will find that you will sometimes compromise traditions and virtues that you previously held. You'll make adjustments and changes in your life in order to survive. That's what I'm getting at. In 1870, during the, uh, the Franco-Prussian War, Otto Bismarck was in charge of the Germans. He laid siege to Paris, which at that time was called the center of the universe, the city of lights, a place of education and culture and wealth. But he surrounded the city, and for several months, no one was allowed in, and they didn't permit anybody to go out. So quite naturally, the German soldiers needing something to eat, they ate the fruit of the Parisians' fields, and they didn't let the prisoners have anything. 
And over a period of time, they had to start rationing the meat each day inside of the city of Paris. So the butchers were allotting a certain portion of beef for each family until they ran out of beef. The people were wondering what would they eat. The horse society encouraged them to eat horse meat because they said it would be beneficial to their health. And they they actually put out a paper encouraging people to do it, not worrying about any kind of diseases that they might think they would get. So people started eating horses until they ran out of horse meat. After about two or three months or so, the famine was so bad that they then began to eat frequently dogs, cats, and rats. They would have gone after the tigers and the lions and other big cats that they were keeping uh, captive in those zoos. However, they were afraid to approach them. They would have eaten monkeys. But at this time, Darwinian evolution was so strong and the theory was so widespread that they were afraid that they would have been eating a relative. This went on for months. And it broke the will and the spirit of the people. If someone would have told those very, uh, very cultured people, very refined persons inside of Paris one year ago, five years before or 10 years prior to this siege that they would be eating rats and cats and horses, they would have laughed at you and looked at you like you were crazy. But a famine sometimes will make you compromise your values and your virtues to survive. That's what you have here. When you look at this in chapter six, you're looking at a community that's so bad off because of the siege of the Syrians that the prices are now inflated. Everything's been driven up high. And here we're faced with someone who actually has to eat a donkey's head. And dove's dung. Dove's dung. What's left on the windshield of your car when you drive away from up under a tree? And a high price at that. When I lived in the Middle East, the, the Iraqi family that I lived with used to tell me that during the time that the sanctions were on Iraq, that for them to go into the black market and buy a loaf of moldy black bread costed them $25. Imagine that. That was 25 years ago. So I'm bringing this out only to say that, that when the conditions are right in a famine, people will do things that are not so, not so good, not so nice, and that's what we have here with the people that are turned into cannibalism. It also says in Deuteronomy chapter 28, if you serve me, I will bless you, but if you don't, I will bring a nation with a leader who has a fierce countenance, and he will come against you, and when he does, he will lay siege to you. Famine will break out in the city, and this starts in verse 55. In Deuteronomy 28, and he says, the man that is of a delicate nature, meaning he's become weak because he hadn't had anything to eat. He will then turn and begin to look at his own son to devour. The woman who is of a delicate nature and weak, she herself will then turn to look to devour the very children that emerge from between her feet. As the language of scripture says. Why do people resort to such things? Survival. They're wanting to live. Now we we look at this and and from a spiritual standpoint, you can see it this way. As Christians, we, we, we like to eat well when it comes to our spiritual food. But there are a lot of people don't eat as well as they should. 
But bologna tastes good when you can't get a steak. And if all your life you've only fed on something that's shallow and not deep and spiritual food that's very carnal and doesn't produce strong Christians, then you won't even really know that you've got a problem in the first place. It's like a little kid living in a famine. A child doesn't even really know they're in a famine when they're a toddler. They're just going around eating and having fun and doing whatever anybody tells them to do. The conditions in our nation are, are very similar to this right now. And the scripture talks about God giving to Israel leanness of soul. And I think that we, we can see this in our nation because when when the values change, it's because the thinking changes. And when the thinking changes, it's because very often there's a famine that's taking place. God says in his book in the Old Testament, there would come a famine, but it would be a famine for the hearing of the word of God. It's not that the word of God isn't available, it's that people don't want to hear what God has to say. And look at how antagonistic people are in this nation when it comes to talking about Christ. If you say God, I mean, you're going to get a little pushback, some kickback, but if you get more direct and specific and you mention Jesus that brings anger because to mention Jesus as the Christ is to say he's the savior to say that he's the savior is to imply we need redemption to imply we need redemption is to say we're sinners if you say that we're sinners then you're offending us Jesus said you must be born again that means if we must be born again then how we were born the first time in sin and shaped in iniquity was not enough this is what the difficulty is for for many people. But if you're if you're repulsed by this story of what this woman is saying to the king regarding her child. Think of how many little kids all around the world today pass away and die. Think about that. How, how many infants today lost their lives because somebody just simply argued and said, well, she ought to have a right to do what she wants to do with her body. I'm telling you, that's a famine in the way a person thinks. Their thinking process doesn't allow them to see that this child needs to live. And so with the way they think about it, they offer up and they sacrifice their own children. In the book of Kings, as well as in Chronicles, there are times where the king, in order to please some foreign deity, offers up his firstborn son. Can you imagine taking your oldest son and killing him and placing him on an altar and burning him up in order to please the God? Now, I do know that, that some of you parents have had days where you probably wanted to do something similar to your sons, okay. But I'm, I'm serious when I'm talking about offering a sacrifice. So th- these were the conditions that we had in ancient Israel at this time. And so the king, when he heard about the cannibalism taking place, he instantly said, I'll kill Elisha. And the reason he said that is because he's mad at God. He, ha- he knows who Elisha is. He knows the responsibility God has for the covenant people of Israel. But the king doesn't realize that just because you know somebody who knows God, that doesn't necessarily mean blessings are going to come to the nation or to you. Because you know a Christian doesn't mean something good is going to happen to your family. And he's upset and he's angry and he's blaming God and he, he's doing the same thing that many people do today. They don't have a relationship with God until they're in trouble But when they start talking about that relationship with God, they're mad at him. Well, he let so-and-so do this. She let so-and-so do that. And there's anger. 
And this man is so angry that he wants to take the head of Elisha, the prophet. And according to verse 32, Elisha is sitting in the home with the elders. And he said, you see how the king has sent his messenger to kill me? He said, you hold him at the door. Elisha knew the man was coming before he even got there. So I want to encourage you. Have your own relationship with God so that you don't have to depend on Elisha to fix your problems. Have a relationship with God that is so real and authentic that you won't have to wait for Elisha or someone else to come and bring you a word from God. You can look right into the scriptures and hear what God is saying to you directly. That's the king's problem. Some people that they only have a connection with God because of their family member. And you see this when when people say things like this. Uh, I'm going through this. Reverend, could you pray for me? I, I, I mean, you're a professional. You really know God. I, I hear that all the time when I'm at Rotary. You know, I, whenever I'm there, I have to be the one to pray the prayer. And they say, well, well, look, Reverend, you're, you're the professional. OK, now I know for a fact most of them they go to church somewhere. But but I'm the professional, they think it's not about being a professional. It's about a relationship with God. And you shouldn't need anybody to talk to God for you. Nothing wrong with having people talk to God with you and pray on your behalf and pray for you. But you you should be able to do it yourself. So Elisha, then in verse one of chapter seven, he says, hear the word of the Lord. And he gives a prophecy and he says, 24 hours from now, the prices are going down. Everything's going to be as it should be. And blessing is coming to the land of Israel. And there was a man that said, oh, I wish that God would open the windows of heaven and do that. So Elisha said to the unbeliever, he said, look, you'll see it, but you won't experience it. Now, now here's the thing. Some famines in our Christian life and in our world can be so bad that you have a hard time believing that it can turn around. That's what they had here. If, if it's bad enough to where we're eating dove's dung and, and, the, and the cheeks of meat off of a donkey's head. And, and it's getting worse and worse and people are dying to the point we're hearing stories in our city about cannibalism and now somebody comes along and says, I'm telling you 24 hours from now everything's going to be different. And people are saying, really? Because you probably would have said the same thing. Generally, when things are going wrong in your life, you have a hard time hearing a positive word from somebody anyhow. When everything's falling apart and somebody comes along and says, look, I'm telling you, God is strong. God is big. God is not forsaking you. He's not the kind of God that's going to leave you. And when you're hearing that, you're thinking in your mind, OK, I can hear what he's saying, but I, I can't believe that right now. Look at how everything's going wrong. That's what was happening here. But thank God there's an Elisha who's not afraid to declare what God's word says, despite what the conditions look like. Which, which tells us it, it's not the outward things or the obstacles that you see with your natural eye that should inspire you, but is what you should know about God and what you can get from his word. See, God's word is, is a strong foundation upon which we can stand, and I don't want any of you to be afraid about what you're passing through. This may not be a message that you particularly need tonight, but it may be a, ne- a message that you need a year from now. Just because you're having problems here and problems here and difficulties here and you're facing a lack 
of finances here, an absence of health here, and you're facing strife and discord in all of these different directions. When someone comes to you with a word from God and from the scriptures and they tell you, look, look, greater is he that's in you than he that's in the world. And you ought to give thanks to God who causes you to triumph over all things. Or in First John, where it says it's by faith we overcome the world. You may not be able to hear it at the immediate time they're telling you that, but it's still true. Just because you can't receive it, that doesn't mean it's not true. And that's what happened here in, in 2 Kings chapter 7. They heard what Elisha the prophet said. They knew he had prophesied in the past. They knew that miracles had taken place yesterday. But when you need a miracle today, you have a tendency to forget all about <laughs> what happened yesterday. So do you remember that time you prayed and you said, God, oh, I need you. Open the heavens. Open the heavens and bless my fields. Then he does. And, and then you, you pray, Father, the, the grandkids are, are uh, they, they're needing, they're needing this and they're needing that. And I could sure use a little bit of extra money right around the holiday season to be able to bless them. And then he does. And then six months later, when something comes up and you're praying and you're talking to God as if you've never known God and God has never known you at all. This is the teaching that says to us, God's word will not fail you. And sometimes you need to hear what what, what somebody else has to say, even when it's contrary to what everybody else is saying. So when we think of our own country, then. <clears throat> you ever notice how the older generations, it, it seems like America's getting worse and worse. I mean, for at least five generations, America's been going to hell in a handbasket. At least five that I can think of. And people that I can recall in my family. And, you know, from everything that I see, it really doesn't seem to be getting any better. That's true. However, I do know that one word from God can change everything. I do know that. Every community, every town, every village in America is one person away from a move of God, from a revival. Every family is one person away, one decision away from a change in everything. And, and when we look at Elisha here, here we have the one man, the one man who's going to be the lightning rod that's going to cause something wonderful to take place because he's telling them what's going to occur. So the famine is happening. Elisha has a, has a, um, he's got a verdict of death. That's looming over his head and just outside the gates there, according to chapter seven, verse three, there are four lepers sitting there. Four lepers. Now, now leprosy is contagious and was contagious. And there are many leper colonies around the world today. Louisiana used to have a leprosarium as, 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 as uh, long ago as 20 years ago. And, and leprosy, of course, I've, I've told you it's one of those skin diseases where it's like it starts biting and working its way, not through not just through your skin, but all the way down to your bone to the point where uh, people start losing appendages. And when they do. It has so devoured the, the cells and, and and all of this in here that I mean, somebody lays down in bed, gets up the next morning and a finger is left on the bed. And there's not even any blood. You, you see these little kids overseas in Africa and going into the Far East. And here you'll be looking at a beautiful kid and there's no nose. There's just two holes. Well, there'll be an ear. The ear is gone, but there's a hole in the side of the head. And leprosy. Now, there's a lot of things they can do to treat it. But you, you, you surely you've got to know that, that at the time this was written, 
Uh, They didn't even know what you know about medicine. However, the story is not about medicine. It's about four lepers that have to make a decision. So in verse number three, it says they were at the entering in of the gate and they were talking to one another. And they said, why are we sitting here until we die? If we say we'll go into the city, then the famine is in the city. The famine is in the city. Say that phrase with me. The famine is in the city. And we shall die there. And if we sit still here, we die also. Now, therefore, come, let us fall into the host of the Syrians. If they save us alive, we shall live. And if they kill us, we shall but die. So here, four men have to make a a decision. But the reason they have to make a decision is because, according to Old Testament law, if you had leprosy, you had to live isolated away from the people anyhow. And there's a there's a scripture in the Bible that tells us that when they had to walk up and down the streets, they had to yell unclean, unclean to notify people they were coming so everybody could run in different directions. How'd you like to have to do that walking up and down Main Street and everybody's running away from you? So they're away from the folks that are sitting out here. They're as hungry as everybody else is. Not only that, they're lepers. We don't know what their physical features were. Little kids might have been afraid to even approach them. We know the adults were keeping them away. So they said, if if we just sit here, we're going to perish. If we go back there, we'll perish. What's going to happen out here? So in their minds, there's death back there. There's death right here. But there's a possibility out there. So the only way to really find out whether or not you're going to be saved alive or die is to step out there with the only option that you have. Now, sometimes going backwards is not an option. Sometimes it is, but in this case, it was not an option. There's nothing to go back to but death. That's the, that's the point. But you can never experience supernatural help from God or aid from God until you put yourself in a position where you permit God to do that for you. God doesn't do miracles for you just sitting at the gate. You got to make a decision. When you come to certain intersections in life, you got to make a decision. You say, well, I choose to do nothing at all. Well, indecision is still a decision. You choose to do nothing. You still made a choice. You said, I'm just going to sit here and just let everything fall apart and I'm going to die. You you can do that. Or rather than retreating and going back there where death is, you can say, well, at least out there in the future, there's a possibility. And since a possibility does exist, let's go and see what God might do. That's that's the key. Yeah. What he might do. And and you'll never know until you until you do that. I I told some some. uh, Many years ago, I told some young people that they were listening to me and I was telling some stories about my, my travels overseas. And they were asking a question like, how, how, how in the world uh, does, does God do all of this stuff in these stories and these testimonies that you have? I, I said, well, God doesn't do them for me sitting in the house. I said, moving around, yeah. moving around. So the, the, the story where, and, I, and I'll do it, I'll, I'll go real fast. I'll go from Jordan to Peru. So in, in, in Jordan, when I came to the end of, of my time in Arabic school in Jordan, and I'd graduated, and I was living with a Palestinian family, uh, one day I was laying in the bed, and, and just in my heart, I knew it's time to leave. 
It was just some words like this that kind of came to me. Okay, the cloud is leaving and going to Israel. Are you going to stay here or go follow me to Israel? Kind of like that. And so I told the family I had to leave. I made my way to Israel. You said, well, how did you end up going to Israel anyhow? Well, that's another story. I had a, a couple that heard me preach on Catalina Island in California many years ago. They called me in Jordan and said, we want to give you an offering of $5,000. So they gave me the $5,000. I jumped and shouted all over the, the house there once I got the message on the telephone. And then I no sooner got off the phone with them and God said, go to Jerusalem. And I want you to give three quarters of that to a pastor family that's over there. They had five kids. I, I knew they could use the money. So I went over there, gave it to them while I was there. God just gave me favor with him. And so now I know the Lord saying go to Israel. So when I decided to go over there, I contact them. They said, we want you to come live on the top floor of our apartment building for free. So that's what I did. I moved to Israel, started going to Hebrew school, catching the bus back and forth, going, going to Hebrew school. After I had been there, gone to Hebrew school, then one night I was up on the rooftop and I was praying. And as I was praying, see, here it goes again. Then, then these, these words down in here, uh, go to Lima, Peru. Kind of like that. Go to Lima, Peru. Well, I didn't know anybody in South America. I, I called back to the, some of the people that were supporting me. They didn't even believe. <laughs> they didn't even believe that what I was saying was true. They said, we don't have anybody in Lima, Peru. Now, now mind you, the, the people that were supporting me, the head guy was a recruiter for the NSA when I was in the Marine Corps and I got out of the Marine Corps, the point of me going back to the Middle East was to become an Arabic uh, specialist to go to work for NSA, National Security Agency. So this guy was saying, no, this, this, this can't be God. You've got to stay there right, right where you are. That's where all of our assets are. I said, I, I can't stay. I've got to go to South America. So I got off the phone with him. Went downstairs, told uh, the man, Charles Cop was his name. His family still lives there, and they pastor in Jerusalem. I told him, thank you for everything you've done for me, but, but I've got I've to go. And, and I've only got a little bit of money, so I'm going to stop off in Cleveland to visit my family. So I did. I went to Cleveland, Ohio, saw mom and dad, and, and all the money I needed, all the money I had, I should say, to get the ticket, only took me to Cleveland, Ohio, so I ran out of money in Cleveland, Ohio. So I was in our church, full gospel assembly. And one Sunday morning, pastor didn't know I was coming back that, that week at all. And, and I showed up and, and our church had probably 100, 125, maybe more people in there. It was an old Jewish synagogue where we met. And so we're standing there and, and doing praise and worship. And then this lady has a guitar and she's playing it like this. And she's singing songs, leading everybody in, in worship. And then she stops. The piano player stops. It gets quiet. And that, that lady says, uh, you right there. And when she pointed, everybody parted like the Red Sea. That's, that's what they did. They parted. And, and, and I was still standing there in the middle just looking. She said, you, you the black guy. Come up here. And, and so I, I went up there and never had this happen before. Hadn't happened since. She had that guitar. And as she was playing it, she, she just starts singing to me. You know, and she starts singing to me about where I'm supposed to be in the nations, about my wife. I hadn't even met Tiffany yet. See, I hadn't even met Tiffany yet. She was talking about all of this stuff, and then she concluded it by saying, you, you, and you're not supposed to be here uh, in this place right now. 
Well, I knew exactly where I was supposed to be. I was supposed to be in South America. So I went home, called Arrow Peru, and, and said I'd like to book a ticket, and I want to fly into Lima, and we're going through all of this. And they get to the part, they say, how are you going to pay for it? So I'm paid for it by faith. They said, we don't accept that. I said, can I have a 24-hour airplane reservation? They did that then. They don't do that now. Gave me a 24-hour plane reservation, held the seat for me. Got off the phone, hadn't been off the phone too long. There's a knock on the door. Somebody said to my mom, is Elder Sutton at home? And so she gets me. I come down there. There's somebody that says to me, uh, I was praying in May, beginning part of May. That's July. Beginning part of May was when I was in Jerusalem and felt like God wanted me to leave. The, the lady said, she, uh, I, I set, set aside this money for you, and God told me the beginning part of May I'm supposed to give this to you. It was $1,600. So there's my ticket for for Peru. So I, I was happy. I took care of that, got the ticket paid, bought the ticket, went all the way down to South America, didn't speak a word of Spanish, landed in the airport, didn't understand anything anybody was trying to tell me, hardly at all, came through customs and went over into a corner in the airport, got down on my knees and prayed and said, God, I have no idea why I'm here. However, I'm just going to believe that when I get up, I haven't heard nothing, haven't seen anything. I'm just going to believe you're going to be helping me place every footprint where it needs to be. That's what I did. I went to the hotel that night, went to sleep. After I got, No, didn't even go to sleep. And the, the next morning, got up, came downstairs to where the attendant was, and I said to the, the, the person down there, because they didn't know English, I didn't know Spanish, but I did know Jesus and all that kind of a thing. So I'm, I'm saying, I'm saying, church and Jesus and hallelujah and all that kind of a thing. And they're just looking at me and, and they said, you, you want to go down here and gave me some direction. So I went down the road and there walk, I walked in first time in my life, went to a Lutheran church, South America, sat in the back of the church. And uh, they're, they're going through all of this stuff that I still didn't understand what, what was going on. And there's a lady sitting here next to me named Ellen. I later found out she's married to a Wycliffe Bible translator. She says to me in Spanish, well, welcome, and who are you, and all of that. And I just said to her in English, I said, I, I don't know a word of Spanish. I don't know why I'm here. <laughs> she says, where are you from? I said, I'm a missionary in the Middle East, but, but, but I'm here right now. She said, well, after service, fluent English. She said, you're coming back and talk to me. So I did. I went back there. She invited me up into the uh, mountains. And, and I went up into Pomabamba in uh, Peru. And her husband was the son of the founding team of missionaries that went into Peru with Wycliffe to start teaching them literacy and translating the Bible. I had no idea. We got up there in the mountains, and, I mean, you, you, you're driving and the cliff, you just fall off like this. Just just fall off. There's no guardrails or nothing, nothing like that. And we got up there so high into the mountains, and I mean, it's suddenly, it's foggy, and I'm thinking, oh my Lord, how in the world is anybody going to figure out how to get around out here? That she said, that's not fog. We're in a cloud now. We're that, far, we're that high up. So now I realize that, that we're that high that it's a cloud, so I start hyperventilating. And she finally got me, got me calmed down, and we went to her house. I got all cleaned up. She brought me down for the meal, husband 
two beautiful little girls, and she said, now tell my family that story. I said, beginning part of, the, part of May, I was praying in Jerusalem. I felt like the king wanted me to go to South America, so I came, stopped off in Cleveland, Ohio. This is what happened in the church service. A lady came in and ended up giving me some money. And, and so at this time, the, the, the husband and wife, they're crying because they said that we, we've been up here all these years and hadn't had any uh, American visitors. Same time God spoke to you, same time God spoke to that lady, give you the money. We prayed and asked God to send somebody up here to us, you see. So when I, when I tell the young people, uh, those, those kind of stories don't just happen. You, you, you've got to be willing, just like these four lepers, you've got to be willing to step out into a possibility to see what God will do, because you'll never know if you don't try. You never know if you don't try. So these lepers went out there, and sure enough, when, when they stepped into the middle of all of this, you can see verse 5, they rose up at twilight, so it's dark. They said, let's sneak out there, and they got out there, didn't hear anything, because in verse 6, the Lord had made the host of the Syrians to hear a noise of chariots and a noise of horses, even the noise of a great host, and they said one to another, lo, the king of Israel has hired the kings of the Hittites and the Egyptians to come upon us. And so they got up and fled in the twilight, left their tents, their horses, their asses, even as the camp was, and fled for their life. So you know that had to be a tremendous sound God made. If everybody is sleeping and you've got some sentries and watchmen that are up and, and suddenly people sit up and they hear the sounds of a, of a cavalry coming. And they think it's the Hittites and the Egyptians. They didn't even bother to take too much stuff. They didn't pack everything on top of the mules and the camels. They grabbed what they could, took off running as fast as they could. And you could tell later on, some of them started discarding the stuff they had to get away quicker because the lepers followed their trail all the way outside the camp. And they said you could see the clothing and the garments that were along the way. Now think about that. Okay, verse 8 tells us these lepers went to the uttermost part of the camp, went into one tent, and did eat and drink. For them, the famine was over. Yeah. And, and, and then they took the gold and the silver and went and hid it, and they came again, went into another tent, did the same thing also, and went and hid it. Then somebody finally said, we probably shouldn't keep this to ourselves. We've got to let everybody else in on all of this spoil that's here. We'll share all of it with them except what we've already hidden. That's, that's probably what they're thinking. And, and so they, they decided that it's best to let somebody know. And they went back to the city in verse 10, told the porter. And I'm sure in the middle of the night, the porter was wondering why these lepers are standing out here banging on the on the door, and, and they told them the story, and they didn't believe them, I don't think, but they went and told the other ones who told the king, and then you can see in verse 12, the king got up and said, it's all a trick. They want to get us outside the city so they can absolutely destroy us. But they went and checked, and it says in verse 15, that they went all after them to Jordan, all the way was full of garments and vessels which the Syrians had cast away in their haste, and the messengers returned and told their king. Isn't that lovely? Now remember, the lepers have something that's contagious. But I'm willing to bet that when the lepers told the porters, 
And the porters told the king and the king and the men went out there and found all of this food and all of this good stuff. I'm willing to bet they forgot all about the leper's leprosy and didn't even care about it anymore. Yeah. And I'm thinking that if we really have discovered the riches of God's grace and his love, and his mercy, and his forgiveness, and his power, and his blessing. And, and as much as, as when we first become Christians and we discover it, we try to bask in it and soak it all in, eventually you realize it's not all for you. You've got to share this. You've got to tell other people about this. You've got you to call other people and tell everybody else, come on out here and get some of this because the spoil of the adversary is now available to us. The wealth of the sinner has been laid up for the just. See, And when God does that for you, you can't be silent. I mean, if your sins have been forgiven and the Lord has changed your life in, in such a way that, that you're indebted to him and you're grateful to him and you really uh, believe that your life would be so much uh, the worse had you not known him, how can you not tell somebody? Why would you not want somebody else to share in this? Don't hide it. Go and tell somebody else so that they can come and be, be, be a part of it. I think that when you start sharing the good news of Jesus with folks and sharing the gospel, your frailties, your defects, your faults, your past sins won't matter to them because when they make the same discovery you made, they won't care about what's up under the blood. Be just like the lepers. See? Yeah. Those, those lepers, they, they felt bad about how they looked and everything in their life, but I guarantee there was some high-fiving going on and, some, and probably a few backflips and some people were applauding and everything because the next day everything had changed just like the man of God had prophesied. 24 hours later, prices had gone down. There's food everywhere. If I was a leper in the middle of all of that, I would have ate well in that tent. I said, we've got to go tell and we've got to let Marlon know that this food is out here, but we'll go after I get full. Yeah, we'll let the Bruning girls know later. I'm going to eat my food. And, and this, is a, this is a beautiful thing. So don't, don't keep it to yourself. And, and this is why we, we want the gospel to be shared with as many people as possible. Because there are a lot of people who want to know what you know, and, and, and their lives could change immediately if we could pull them out of that famine. Across this nation, generally, out here on the Nebraska-Kansas border, specifically, there are a lot of homes experiencing famine right now. Marriages that are falling apart. Parents with kids don't know what in the world to do with them. Kids don't like the parents. Parents don't like the kids. Bars and saloons are packed every night because you've got people sitting there at the, at the, uh, right there at the bar and they don't want to go home. They'd rather drive around the block 18 times rather than have to pull that car up in that driveway. And it's all because there's a famine in their life and they don't even know that it's a famine. Some of them do know. The ones that do know, some of them may have an inkling that the idea that the, that the blessing can be found in Scripture, but there's so much pride that keeps them from humbling themselves to the Word of God. And they'd rather, they'd rather soak in that sin and sink down into that quicksand of sin rather than humbling themselves to let God do what he wants to do in their lives. It's a decision. 
if, if I'm like that, I'm asking myself the question, since I'm at the intersection, why should I sit here and die? See, I can go forward and try something different and let God have his way. Or I can do this and keep looking back over my shoulder. Dad and mom had a bad marriage. Grandma and grandpa had a bad marriage. Alcoholics are on every side of the family all back there. Drug addicts, horse thieves, and everything else back there. You, you can look back there and try to go back there, but that's not going to bring you any kind of victory. You've got to think about the possibility that God can bring liberty and freedom to you when you make a decision. Starts with the decision. Why should we sit here and then die? Okay, so let's tie up the loose ends and finish up. So... Verse 16, the people went out and spoiled the tents of the Syrians. A measure of fine flour was sold for a shekel and two measures of barley for a shekel, according to the word of the Lord. Isn't it good to know God doesn't lie? Wow. You can rest comfortably in the evening because you know God looks after you. The people went out and spoiled the tents. God brought the miracle to the people and put it just outside the gate, but the people had to go outside the city to get it. God delivered the children of Israel from Egypt, and he told them, I'm going to put manna just outside the tent every single day, but you've got to go outside that tent and get it. God always has you do something to participate in what he's trying to do to bless you. Yeah, person looking for employment. I didn't always have somebody come knock on the door. They got to get out there and on that beaten trail and, and start doing something. I mean, it's very rare that you're sitting at home and you hear a knock at the door. Say, hey, how you doing? My name is Job. I'm, I'm looking for Loretta. <laughs> See, it, it doesn't happen that way. So when you're, when you're wanting God to do something supernatural or miraculous, don't be afraid to step out there on a limb. There's risk involved with everything. The, the disciples could have sat in a boat all day long and talked about Jesus walking on the water. They could have did water calculations. They could have put together all kinds of different mathematical problems and formulas that they want to, but they'd never known that, that they could do it until somebody decided, like Peter did, let me get out of this boat, and Master, if you want me to come, let me come. And the Lord says, come, because that's what he's always saying. Get out of the boat and try something new. Stop being afraid. Just step out here and let's believe that I'm going to be with you. And if the storm and the wind and everything start blowing, don't, don't let that bother you. I'm still out here in the storm. So that's the key. So in, in your life, you've got somebody wonderful, and his name is Jesus. Isn't that wonderful? Oh, my. Praise the Lord. Where would we all be without him? I should say I would have liked to known some of you before you came to know Christ, but I'm not going to say that. I am glad I know you now. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, we love you. We are so grateful that the word is true. And we can learn a whole lot looking into this. Father, help us to not be a people of fear, but to trust you, to believe you, and to know that you're a God of honor and integrity, and you're not a man that you should lie. So God, help us every day to live close to you, to be led by your spirit, and to trust your word in all circumstances. These things we do pray for in Jesus' mighty name, and everyone said, Amen.